So hi, Lincoln, what was your first computer? <laughs> what was my first computer? I would have to think about, I would have to say it's probably a calculator or maybe a wristwatch. But uh, if you're talking about personal computers, yes, uh, my first computer was an Apple Mac Plus. Wow. And I, <laughs> actually it was broken when I got it. Um, it. It wouldn't boot up. So even as a kid, I decided to take it upon myself to take this computer apart, figure out what was wrong with it, get it to work again. And you know, I was probably like before 10, so it's not really, I wasn't doing that much to it, but I did take it apart and put it back together again. And hey, it worked. <laughs> no so kidding. That was my, yeah, that was my first computer. I think I just needed to reseat the memory or something. Okay. Yeah, but this is actually a lucky accident, right? Because then you were motivated to do more. Yeah. Uh, probably not my defining moment in computing, but uh, it it was definitely encouraging. <laughs> okay. That way. How you got it? Uh, I think actually from my uh, my parents, they were both really involved in the um, Unitarian Church that I grew up with, and I think the church was getting rid of some computers, getting rid of some computers or um, something like that, and it wasn't working, so they brought it home and said, "Here, if you want to play around with this, go for it." So I did. Okay, cool. And what you if after it booted was or what you did with it? You know, I. I think I had like a little disc of Apple games mm -hmm. that I played with. And I think Crystal Quest was the first game I really liked. Okay. And I, I, mm -hmm. I would play Crystal Quest and Spectre Challenger. I think those were the two games. I don't know any of them. So what was Crystal Quest? It was like, what is it? Text Adventures? It was, this, it was like this little weird spaceship game. Okay. It was all kind of done with ASCII, of course, because that was the time. And you would fly this little spaceship around and you had to collect the little asterisks on okay. the screen before before the other little things would get you. And then you have to escape out of the little hole, okay. little portal in the middle. And you liked the experience? Yeah, it was fun. You know, it was the first... Uh, I mean, I think, you know, kids like toys and games and it was the first game that I really played on a computer. And it was... I don't know, it fascinated me that this, like, screen could do so much. Okay. That you could have this sort of ongoing experience and it was always different and uh it was very i still play games i, I just it, it drew me in okay what are you playing now <laughs> oh man i'm a super nerd uh, right now i still play an old version of mech warrior called mech warrior living legends okay that uh actually kind of like the open source story is now completely run by the community and is in true open source fashion, better than any commercial MechWarrior game you can buy. Okay. And what is MechWarrior? Uh, I have no idea. This is like... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, it's like people getting into big robots and you walk around in these stompy robots and try oh, to shoot Mech, uh, Yeah. I, I think I played something similar. It was... Uh, this was MechWarrior from, from Sierra, right? Is it from Sierra? Uh, I think Sierra had the rights to it. At one point. I think I played that 20 years ago. It was like a huge robot yeah. where it was nice sound, so you can go into the robot and, and, and move with the... It looks like the walkers from from uh, Star Wars, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and there's all these different kinds of walkers, ro robots you can get, and yeah. they all have different weapons and different armaments. And, and this is open source right now? Uh, it's not open source. I think that there are still restrictions on the rights, but the community has totally taken over development. Okay. And uh, So I can they buy it, it or download or what? It's free. Okay. Okay, Mac Warrior. Okay, this was a good tip actually. So, um, Mac Warrior Living Legends is what it's called. Okay, and uh, when you started to to code with ten or why? 
I, th I think I was probably actually younger huh. when I got my first introduction to coding. Um, I th there was a, a program that our school did where you could, I, I don't know what kind of, what it was called, but you had these little turtles and you could make blocks and sort of like make a maze for the turtle and you program where the turtle goes. And that was my first little introduction. But Logo, right? What got, logo, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's what it was called. Well, you remember that. <laughs> because uh, with the turtle and logo, this is also where I got fascinated by the computer with the little logo thing. And there was like, you know, move forward or turn right or something. There were, there were the commands. Yeah. And you can draw things on, on the screen. And uh, recently I thought about logo and I found ACP logo, I think it's called. And this is open source version on Mac. And the cool story is you can, you know, complete program the, 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 the Mac computer with that. Not only, you know, the total, you can have, you know, you can speak and whatever you like. It's more like, you know, the Apple script. <laughs> wow. I'm, I'm going to write that down and check that out. Yeah. You have to, to search for something like uh, logo on Apple and or ACP, I think, logo, ACP soft or something like this. Um, yeah. Also put to the but show notes. Mm -hmm. It was right around that time. Uh, I think my dad was the one that got me into that mm -hmm. class or program at the school. But I have this like very distinct memory of when I really got sucked in as a programmer and saw what computers could do. I, I think it was before that I was I was super young and, and my dad was working on a little startup company called XMWS, which was the first uh, remote window server. Okay. Uh, and it, it didn't really go anywhere. I think it, you know there was lots of competition and the positioning was weird. But anyway, um, he's in his office working late and I mean, late, late to me, it was probably like eight o'clock because I'm, like, I'm a kid. <laughs> and uh, I remember I went into his, his office and he, he looks at me and he says, Lincoln, do you want to see computer count to a million? And as a kid, you're like, wow, a million. <laughs> That's incredible. And um, I was like, sure. Yeah. So I think in a couple seconds, he writes a bash script that just, you know, loops mm -hmm. through from zero to a million. And as a kid, my eyes just light up because uh, it astounds me. And mm -hmm. it, it actually took like five seconds, I think, to print from zero to a million because console output was super yes. slow back yeah. then. <laughs> but uh, that's when I was like, wow, this is really cool, and I want to learn more about it. Uh, how, how old were you? I think probably like eight. Wow, not bad. So then you got but, your Apple after that. Yeah, yeah, and that, that was before the, I got my own computer because I would go in there and that uh, he would play with the turtle with me and show me around. He had a bunch of Vax pizza boxes and Solaris oh. pizza boxes that were uh, super old now, but really cool back then. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I had um, actually I, I I worked at Sun Microsystems as a trainer, so I had not the pizza boxes rather than the workstations. So those were like the little towers. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. so this is what I also enjoyed. So uh, cool. So why you played then and not you know tried to count two million or even two millions? I I don't know. As a kid, you have always so much going on, and uh, I don't know when. I think it was when I was getting ready to go to high school, mm -hmm. and we all had to get one of these uh, Texas Instruments graphing calculators. Yeah. <clears throat> so uh, I read about it, and it was really cool. It's probably the most powerful thing I'd ever held in my hand at the time because cell phones mm -hmm. didn't exist mm -hmm. and i real I, I read the manual mm -hmm. when back when people actually read manuals and <laughs> i saw that you could write your own programs and functions for it and i thought wow you can program stuff and you can make things show up on the screen i should try to make a game 
And I did. I tried to make this little game where you have the spaceship that moves around and shoots little laser beams up as stuff falls down. Okay. Um, like Galaga, except yeah. a 13-year-old's version of Galaga, which was really bad Galaga. <laughs> but that's what I that's where I went with it at first. Was it basic? My first program. Uh, I think it was basic, actually. Whatever basic came on the TI-83 calculator. And uh, what what was the, the name of the calculator? TI what? TI... TI-83, TI-91, something like because that. Because I'm curious about the keyboard, you know. Uh, it was a lot to work out, I think, to do. Oh, there was no keyboard, really. Uh, you actually had to write the program on the computer, and then there was a link cable. Okay, it's better. Okay. That you plug into the uh, parallel port, I think it was. And then there was a driver to push okay. the program up. Okay, this is easier because I don't know how to input the, th- the stuff. Yeah, it would have been impossible on the little number pad or whatever. <laughs> yeah, no, impossible. I, I heard somewhere is that someone you know uh, programmed something on on uh, how to call it feature phone. So, and what we did back then, I started mm-hmm. with static spectrum, so it had no memory. So you wrote the program, and then if the computer powered down, everything was gone. So I thought it was similar experience, <laughs> you know. Yeah, almost. I think you could actually edit the code on the on the actual screen of the calculator, but it was super difficult because you had to use the little arrow keys to move the cursor, and then you'd have to like use the number pad to to change the the, the value of whatever mm-hmm. character you were over. And are these Something calculators like still around, or are they basically? Oh yeah, yeah. I actually looked. Uh, I don't know why. I was like, I wonder if these th- things are still here. And I, sure enough, they still make. I think that exact same calculator probably has a more powerful CPU, and behind the scenes, it's probably amazing, but looks the same. So this was your first. I wish a more complex software you've wrote, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, what was next? Next, in high school, I did a bunch of programming classes, uh-huh. um, which they actually offered in my high school. I went to I went to a private school, uh, so I was pretty lucky in that regard. My parents had the foresight to and the the means to send me. And I think we we it, like the generic C plus plus programming and sort of object oriented design and in high school the basics. Of, mm-hmm. How old were you in high school? So where where high when high school starts and when it ends? So fourteen years is when it starts. Okay, and then it ended at eighteen, and I okay. was seventeen when I took the class. Okay, so that's doable. that was uh, like yeah, that's that's pretty reasonable. Um, it, there was a ba- that was the programming basics, and then I, I I just knew it was what I wanted to do, so I actually. They, the school offered the option to do an independent study, mm-hmm. and I had them create this independent study programming class for me and a couple of friends. Mm-hmm. And we wrote a multiplexing socket chat server. Mm-hmm. So in C++, we would open the socket, we would accept connections, and then multiplex over it and listen for when people sent things and send mm-hmm. it to the right place. Okay. And you enjoy and, that? Uh, yeah. It sounds super nerdy, but I loved it. Yeah, but um, what wonders me right now is so you you were excited about computers with ten, and then you know eight years nothing happened, and then you started you know with heavy lifting and C, and was excited about that. So there was nothing in between. Actually, you're reminding me. It's been so long. Yeah, um, you're right. Actually, uh, my dad gave me books. Uh, I got a copy of Bjorn Strawstrup's um, C++. C programming. Yeah, C plus plus programming. Yeah, and uh, the Kurtigan and Ritchie C book is what I started okay. with. So he just had me read those, and I would write, I would do the the examples and and the things in those books, and he just kept progressing me. And then um, somewhere in there before high school, I did a, a couple internships at Bank of America, which back then was Fleet Bank Credit Card, and I did um, some like automation for them using Perl. Wow! And in their call center to 
analyze people's productivity. And uh, I'd also did a project that ended up being what got sent to clients for their year-end credit card mm -hmm. statement <laughs> in Perl. Mm -hmm. So it was an interesting time. I totally forgot about that. So, okay, because otherwise it would be, you know, somehow strange that, you know, there's a gap of seven years without any, you know, <laughs> reasonable <laughs> activities with computers, I would say. There's, there's a gap in my memory, apparently, so yeah, okay. it makes sense to me. Then you, you, you did, did some stuff with C, which was pro probably trivial, comparing that with what you did in Bank of America. Um, um, yeah, I mean, it was a, yeah. an intro program yeah. class. So what happens after that? So, so I still love computers. Um, I graduated from high school and went to university. Mm -hmm. And I knew right off the bat I was going to focus on computer science. Cool. So uh -huh. that's what I went in doing. And um, I, I know not everyone goes in to school really kind of knowing what they want to do. And I, I did. And it was right at the time when the 2000 internet crash happened. Okay. Like all the startup companies went bust and yeah. people were saying, programming is a dead industry. No one's going to want to be a programmer because all the jobs are gone. Yeah. And I am going into school my first year when this is happening. And I remember reading this article saying, you know, millions of programmers or hundreds of thousands of programmers are losing their jobs and switching to other industries. And I was like, this is great for me. <laughs> when I graduate, I'm going to have any job I want. Yeah. And that's exactly what happened. Yeah. And uh, what you learned at the university, still C and C++? Yes. Although they were just starting to integrate Java. Okay. Actually, I think the intro programming classes were in Java. Mm -hmm. And uh, I went to Penn State University. Mm -hmm. So they were a little Penn more... Penn State is uh, Pennsylvania? Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, Pennsylvania State University. Mm -hmm. They were very technical. Computer science was almost computer engineering. Mm -hmm. Like there was a mix of hardware and software. We did the Java for the basic stuff. And then we got into C. And then we went into the HDL for circuit design. Wow. And then circled all the way back into C and then back to Java by the senior year. So you learned Java at the university. So you were forced to learn it more or less. I would say that I was forced to use it. Yeah. Um, I didn't appreciate what Java could do at that point. Mm -hmm. And it seemed like a whole lot of extra work to get it to run in this other program that I didn't really understand, yeah. the virtual machine. Yeah. Uh, when I could just compile my code. Yeah, exactly. You know. Yeah, yeah. So I think C++ is probably what we use the most. Mm -hmm. And I went sort of a weird route. I There was like all the software design courses, but I really liked the operating system low-end stuff. So I learned mm -hmm. about like memory allocation and... Um, how to write operating system functions and all the really low-level things. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until my like last semester when I got back into the higher-level Java, Perl stuff that I started getting more into the regular mm -hmm. um, like application development and building things that quote, people can use. So, and what happened after your university? So, so after university, I... Well, I went to the job fair at, at Penn State and gave my resume to a bunch of people and got a bunch of job offers and ended up going with uh, Vanguard, the mutual fund company, mm -hmm. finance company. And they were doing Java 100%. Okay. Everything was Java. Mm -hmm. So I was already kind of familiar with it, but I didn't really have any experience, of course, doing business applications. So it was a bit of a transition which 
was fine. And by the time I think three years had gone by and I was starting to talk to my next job, Red Hat, that I was seeing the things they were doing wrong in their architecture or, I mean, it works, right? They have their, their site never crashes. It mm-hmm. still doesn't crash. And, uh, they, they were, they were making good use of it, but I saw ways to improve what they were doing. They had the monolith because the monolith was the, the way to do things back then. And I, I was saying, okay, well, if, if you split this up into, you know, uh, an application for every part of the website, you can push up the changes to that part, mm-hmm. leave everything else running and you won't have to have people up all night. So microservices are your fault, right? Uh, yeah, I guess. <laughs> Except when I gave that presentation, the, uh, the tech lead, uh, took it and threw it in the trash before he walked out the door. So oh, really, <laughs> really? Yeah. Oh, this, yeah. this rude. I won't say his name. No, he's, he's a nice guy. And, uh, we, we got a lot closer after that. Uh, actually, I think it was the first time he, he started to see me as someone with ideas. So it ended up, it ended, ended up well, but yeah, okay. it was a funny, funny moment. So back then I remember I did almost exactly the same as you did, but, uh, we called that shared nothing architectures. So this was, there was shared nothing. This was the architectural style, style back then. And the projects were reasonable because uh, in my projects, people tried, you know, to have uh, millions of modules. So uh, with the shared nothing, we introduced, you know, five, let's say five to 10 highly isolated modules. And this was the mm-hmm. shared nothing and not, you know, fiddling with jars inside a war or, or year back then, years. Right. Which which year was it? 2004, five? That would be 2006. Oh, okay. This is uh, pretty late. So there was already Java 6. On the horizon. Yeah, except I think they were on Java 1.4. Oh, Because okay. all, all banks use old versions of stuff. So with <laughs> lots of XML. So you were the XML expert, deployment descriptor. No, you know, they actually did a pretty good job of separating responsibilities. So I think that the project leads had to worry about the XML and we wrote the Java, which was great for me because I love writing Java. Yeah, and the project lead hated probably XML. Oh, they hated their jobs. <laughs> I think, and now, and, seen, and now they are doing YAML, you know, instead of XML, probably. That's even worse. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> way worse. I have, I would like to mention here. So, um, but I think we met the first time around 2006, right? I think it was. It was either at JSF Summit or in Florida, like Orlando, or um, one of the earlier for me earlier Java ones. Java, Java one or something in. Um, I, th- I remember you were in Germany, in Vienna or somewhere. And, yeah, and, uh, but, maybe Devox. Yeah, something like this. And um, so you you, st- you started at, at Red Hat back then? Yeah, uh, after three years, four years at, at Vanguard, I got involved in... I, let me back up for a second. I've always done like side projects, no matter what job I have. And so as I was learning things on the job at Vanguard, I was doing my own personal stuff. And I wanted to make a website, and then I wanted to make project management software for Agile and that was actually my first like startup attempt. Okay. And this was the OCP soft, right? This was your first startup? Yeah. Still? And what yeah. is OCP? Open closed principle. Ah. Yeah, because I was big into design patterns. They oh. just uh, actually learning design patterns was when my mind just exploded and realized every you know, all the potential of software and how you can actually make it so it doesn't feel bad <laughs> when you're when you're writing code. Yeah, but for me the design patterns were always Trivial, comparing it, comparing it to system level software. What you did with C and C plus plus. Oh yeah. So it's not like you know this is like almost comparing PowerPoint to assembler. You know. But it's not like I don't view it at that level. It's like design patterns explain all the things you felt in code but okay. couldn't quite put your head around. So like, why does it feel difficult when I have to change this uh, part of the software? 
I'm I'm like all the all the parts all the parts that are complicated have you know they go right through this path this mm-hmm. logical path and when I change this it affects forty things um, but when I change any of those forty things it also affects another forty things mm-hmm. and design patterns for me were the moment where I realized okay you can actually break that out into a separate testable piece and then not worry about all those other 40 things because there's a contract that you've established that really helps um, encapsulate is the word you know, mm-hmm. all the complexity. Mm-hmm. So you can do that at any level of programming. Yes. You know, I, maybe not assembler, harder to do an assembler, but um, you know, even C programming, you can, you can do that. It's just a matter of taking the time. So interestingly, you asked me uh, before the show what I'm doing right now. And uh, for me, it's not like, you know, I'm not introducing a lot of patterns. I'm, I'm removing them. So what I see right now in projects, everyone would like to have patterns and they actually forget about the business logic. So you, they have, you know, they assume that everything is highly valuable and everything has to be encapsulated and segregated. And you, they spend all the time, you know, with frameworks, encapsulation, isolation. And there is a lot of code which who no one understands anymore. <laughs> so really, no kidding. This was actually my path. So this was interesting. I didn't knew that you are behind the patents because uh, we met several times and uh, say we always had, you know, we were we had similar opinions. But right now, it was funny that you are uh, no pro patents and I was always a little bit cautious with the patents because I knew developers just love, you know, the patents and all the stuff behind the patents and OCP <laughs> and solid or whatever, and they locked, you know, they, they they laugh just to talk about solids, OCPs, and whatever, and uh, forget the, the the client. So this is uh, what yeah. I still, you know, fighting with in projects. It's a balance, right? Yeah. I mean, if you go too far in either direction, you have a problem yeah. because no patterns. Well, now you have a you know sixty thousand line file that no one knows what it does, and you're afraid to touch it because it's yeah. just too complicated. Yeah. Or but, you know, or you have sixty thousand files and no one knows what any anything does. <laughs> so, so, the question, this would be an interesting topic for another podcast, you know, what, what, if, what is better? I would almost say, you know, one file which is properly named is easier to understand the 60,000 files with generic names, you know, impulse, ifs, and whatever. Because yeah, what, I guess it depends. What, what, what I have experience with, uh, sometimes I coach um, internal teams, you know, like, because they would like to program again. And uh, so what I do, they inherit software from external software providers. So this is uh, sometimes the story. And uh, what, what, what I see is that the internal people, they are usually at not, never t- that time, you know, to write software. So they started to write the software, but they have uh, excellent knowledge about the domain, target domain. And what they do, they choose good names. They have no idea about Java and the patterns, or they will never name something, you know, like uh, abstract, factory, uh, whatever. Just, <laughs> they just call it, you know, a, let's say, a Mac warrior or a robot, period. Uh-huh. And for me, such a project is very easy to convert into whatever you like because I just see the business logic and there is nothing in between. But uh, if I see, you know, projects from external partners, you know, created by architects with predefined templates and layers, it is hard. This is really hard to tell what the project actually yeah, does. That's true, because the the language of the design or the language of the patterns ends up being more of the description of what things actually do than. And if it's improperly named or the names aren't useful, that's just the worst. But um, it's like you have this sort of, you write comments, right? And the comments are supposed to des- describe what the code does. And then all of a sudden the comments are wrong. So you you go in and you update the comment and maybe you, you rename the method to be what the, the code does. And then 
you realize that now you have three different ways that you want to, that method to work in different scenarios. So you break those down into classes. Yeah. And, and then each class is like the name of the, the algorithm that you want it to run. And then you realize you've got, you know, 40 different kinds of algorithms. So now it's just called algorithm. And you're like, what? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, let's say, you know, um, in, in my project, you know, the domain experts would see a keyboard as a keyboard. And they say, okay, a computer keyboard is a keyboard. I can use it, but re reuse, I don't care. And, you know, software developers would see a keyboard as a collection of reusable switches and, you know, <laughs> and whatever, and cables, and everything would be reusable. But, you know, there is no use case of reuse a switch from a keyboard. You could potentially, you know, reuse a switch somewhere else, but it will never happen. And for me, it is better to think about a keyboard about a keyboard than a collection of switches, cables, with everything's reusable, but it's... I, I don't like to see the complexity, you know, inside a keyboard. Yeah, and I think that that is actually a good example of how a design pattern can be good because if you have, think of a keyboard as a keyboard, that's a great class, right? A keyboard mm -hmm. should behave as a keyboard. Mm -hmm. You have key in, signal out. Yeah, and that's that's your your design pattern. And I think the best advice I ever got around when to use design patterns was from a trainer at Vanguard mm -hmm. who said, "Don't." write a design pattern just to write a design pattern, write your code so that it works. And then as soon as you write that code the second time, yeah, make a design pattern. Exactly. Or three times. Yeah. So, and this was, the, times, uh, this was back then, I think Atlassian, the company, they, there was an interview with them and they had similar, you know, how, what they do. They copy the code three times. And if they see, you know, a, a pattern which arises, they, uh, they think about, yeah, this is actually great advice. Mm -hmm. So never write, yes. you know, abstractions first, just write the implementation first and then think about the abstraction. Yeah. So it was an excursion to design patterns because you wanted <laughs> to, to write <laughs> project management software and your company right. name is OCP Soft. And I wondered always what this OCP does mean. And, and now we know it. So did your project management software actually work? Short answer is yes. Okay. It did work, but... It definitely didn't go anywhere. <laughs> okay. That's a pity because there are lots of successful project management software, right? It, yeah, it it was it worked. It, we did it in Java. Uh, I think it was J2EE back then, but Java EE, now Jakarta EE, right? Yeah. But Java E what? Five, six, six? I think it was five to six around that time frame. And what, which because front end you, you choose? Java server faces. Okay, always. You like Java server faces? I did. I still do, actually, if you're going to be doing, you know, server-side templating and, yeah. and that whole thing. I think there's definitely a good place for it. Yeah. Um, the component approach is great if you want to make a separate team to make your components and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Absolutely. Another story, because you said uh, startups. So sometimes I coach startups and they ask me you know, what to do and mm -hmm. they don't care about Java. And I, But I showed them uh, JSF. And they are absolutely delighted. It is incredible. I just copy the code and data binding, everything works, validation, everything works. Yeah, but you know, if you yeah. would like to customize the components, this this is where you have to know to think twice whether this with this technology is right for you. And what we end up doing several times, we use JSF for uh, for back office applications, which don't mm -hmm. have to be to pixel perfect. There's no just typically CRUD. Right. And the uh, uh, clients facing software, we use uh, something bare metal with JavaScript. And this worked excellent. And where GSF was not that successful is where, you know, GSF was chosen by an architect in a central place w w without showing the uh, users, you know, the components. And the users expected different behavior 
which uh, mm -hmm. the behavior couldn't be fulfilled or provided by the component libraries. And then developers had to extend the library and then it, everything went south. Yeah, then it gets complicated because you have this intersection of Java with like yeah. HTML templating and then you've got JavaScript that runs in it. Yeah, it gets and you create your own fork actually. And if your the provider upgrades your component, then everything, <laughs> then, then, then forget about that. So th th this was ac the actual problem of JSF. Actually problem of any code generation libraries, right? So this is. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I'm sure we'll talk about code generation later because that's a, a oh. big part of my Red Hat story. But uh, this software, it was called Social PM, Social Project Management. Oh. Because uh, back then, I think we had Rally Dev and a couple other of the big agile softwares that were really uncomfortable to use, I'll put it that way. And I said, oh my God, it'd be so much easier to do better. And mm -hmm. really, it was easier, easy mm -hmm. to do better. Um, the software worked, but it was, in, it was in the early stage of my career and the two people I was doing it with, uh, one of them got married, one of them got divorced. Oh. And we just kind of fell apart as a team and I couldn't do it all by myself. Okay. All right. That's this, what happens. Around. Yeah. So what was your next OCP, you know, or what you did at Red Hat? So we, we can switch back and forth between OCP and Red Hat because what I remember, you gave me, if I met you the first time, your business card. And this was yes. the business card from OCP Soft. And I, and I, and I said, how is it possible that you are working as a freelancer? Exactly. Uh, this is exactly this, this uh, business card. And uh, how is it possible that you are working as a freelancer for Red Hat? What's the deal? So I couldn't, you know. And uh, we had a brief chat because you did, I uh, forgot what you did. You did the uh, code generation we generated Maven. You remember? Yeah, it was. Um, how it was called? It was actually, it generated Maven-based projects for Java. Uh, it was called JBoss Forge. Forge, exactly. This is where where I got the business card from you, and then with a brief conversation, yeah. and it was in Munich for unknown reasons in uh, in in the underground metro. I, I, I don't know why we met there. I have no idea. I exactly know where it was. It was you know underground, and you gave me a business card, and we had a brief chat about JBoss Forge. And I say, okay, I don't use such a thing usually. I just create you know simple Maven project. I say, hey, but take a look at Forge, and we had a brief conversation. I think there were the JBoss days or something. It was organized uh, open source thing from and it was. I think it was um, one of the J, uh, JBoss one of the JBoss community conferences. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and we were. I was in Europe with Andrew Rubinger. Yeah. Uh, who I, who I noticed you spoke with uh, yeah. a couple months ago, and Dan Allen and a couple other uh, everyone else from JBoss R and D group, and we were just doing a tour of conferences. I think we went to Bulgaria. Uh, Vienna, back to back. We did some student uh, JBug, JBoss user group presentations. Mm -hmm. Exactly. At universities. We went to Stuttgart and uh, a couple other places in Germany. It was a nice time, right? It was a great time. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. I missed that. Yeah. And now we have to, you know, with the pandemic, we have the exact opposite story, right? <laughs> no travels. I, that's, that's why my hair is so long. I, I've decided that I will not get it cut until the pandemic is over. Oh, uh, my hair is usually way shorter than now. So I cut it all shorter and shorter during the pandemic. So um. <laughs> Is that possible? It's pretty short. Yeah, it's possible. Tomorrow it will be getting even shorter. So <laughs> but I do it by myself. It takes about five minutes. So this is a great story. Optimization, you know. Yeah, right. Agile. So this is the most optimization. Just nope, don't ever cut it. Yeah, but it's too hot. It is too hot. Yeah. What you did at Red Hat and why you, why you started at Red Hat? Right. So I guess that gets back to the social project management stuff. The the whole time, I, I have side projects for my side projects. And as I was developing this 
project management software with my two friends. I started, we were using JSF. I think we were using Spring at that point because I didn't understand what DDB was and CDI didn't exist. Dependency injection frameworks for everyone else who's listening. The One question is because you used Spring back then. I always wondered myself, you know, back then Spring in the XML. This was terrible. Mm-hmm. You had to write more XML than Java. I, 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 I get you know, constant, uh, constant questions back then. Why, why I'm not using Spring? And, and I know projects where XML was longer than Java code. I said, for me, it was like, you know, the question didn't make any sense to use Spring. This was right after they introduced auto-inject. Mm-hmm. So you could just write auto-inject star and then put your injectable annotation on the class yeah. and it would just show up. But so. big, back then, uh, if they introduced the annotations, if, I don't know whether you remember, Spring was against annotations. They said this is they slow. Were. And this is not production ready. So uh, mm-hmm. for me, it was, what are you talking about? It was that the whole conversations about uh, annotations are not fast or whatever the problem was. And uh, what I remember as well is this the auto-wired, I think. The auto-wired. auto-wired. auto-wired was, That's what it was called. Yeah. yeah. Because uh, back then there was this add inject, you know, and in, in, out, and auto-wired. And this was for a mm-hmm. long time, was not advised to use in production. So Spring was a long time against convention of a configuration. They say, we have, you know, to define everything clearly. And for me, convention of a configuration or configuration by exception, this was the only thing to do. So for me, this is yeah. why I really liked the, the whole starting with Java E5. I didn't care about EJBs. I just wanted to, to say once, at EJB, inject the thing and forgot about that. And yeah. at all conferences at the beginning, I killed all the interfaces. I didn't care at all about whatever enterprise. I just wanted to have, you know, at EJB without any configuration, and this this is what I like to have. And I couldn't understand at all the whole argumentation with the, you know XML back then and 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 flexibility whatever. So this is why I was curious about because uh, yeah. back then you were a you no know, skilled system engineer, you had your own startup, and then you had to fiddle with XML. So this was the question why you did it back then. Yeah, well, I did it because I wanted to make software. And uh... but you liked that? <laughs> you liked that or not? Or oh, you remember? Oh, I, did, I didn't like doing okay, XML. Okay. I still don't like doing configuration. I try to avoid it. Okay, yeah, yeah. But uh, a reason. at some point, someone has to do it, right? Okay. And uh, Well, I guess it depends on the framework. But anyway, getting back to the how I started with Red Hat thing. Yeah. Um, I'm developing the software using this technology. And it was, I think I, we started switching over to Java EE instead of Spring because it was just getting easier and easier. And you're using Java server faces, but this was before Java server faces really, uh, I'll say you could, before you could use it like a website. Okay, and I I make I make this distinction between a web application and a website mm-hmm. because a website shows you the information. Maybe you can interact with it a little bit, mm-hmm. but a web application assumes you are you have a session, you are storing information. Mm-hmm. You're going to be there for a while, and that's just not an assumption that you can always make on every page of the site. So I wanted to support statelessness mm-hmm. in the web application using URLs. Mm-hmm. So I started writing an extension for Java server faces, because like everything in Java, you can extend it. And I created the first pretty faces library. Remember that, right? Which I probably talked to you about way back then. That would let you, with XML, of course, just write um, a little URL pattern with asterisks for your wildcards. And then you could specify the internal page, XML, JS, PX or something like that file that it would uh, render and you could bind the data from the URL into the beans 
open the page and do validation and all kinds of stuff like that. Now in JavaScript, it's called routing. Routing, yeah. That's true. I, I know that. I do a lot of JavaScript these days. Okay. That was the side project to my side project. But this was and very, very popular. So this, this pretty faces, this was, you know, the, this was like, this was the huge criticism of GSF and uh, mm -hmm. the ability to have, you know, deep linking, right? So you can also use, you know, link right. inside, inside a view was a huge deal with the pretty faces, I remember. And this was yeah. independently from you. So I, I read about this a lot. I think there was even Java 1 session or something like this about pretty mm -hmm. faces. It was actually really popular and people still still use it, much to my amazement, even though um, I think you can do a lot of this with just Java server faces itself at this point. Mm -hmm. Because the way this ties into Red Hat is I got onto, I got noticed by a couple people at Red Hat who were working with the JSF specification and they saw pretty faces and said, hey, do you want to get this into the spec? So I joined the Java server faces expert group, worked on creating the actual specification for how you deep link into JSF pages and Cool. That's how I got it connected with Red Hat and cool. more into that. Company. So you work with Ed Burns and mm -hmm. nice. Ed Burns and Jim Driscoll and a bunch of those guys, yeah. So I didn't knew that. So I thought you were you no know, more the tool guy JBoss Forged, but you actually uh, joined Red Hat to uh, to support with JSF spec, right? That's right. And when was it? Two thousand seven, six, seven? Two thousand ten. Wow. Okay, later than expected. Okay. Yeah, because I was at uh, my first job was out of college in two thousand six. Okay. Been about four years at the bank. Okay. But yeah, so I started doing all the JSF stuff on the Seam project. And then at some point in there, they wanted someone to take lead of project generation, mm -hmm. the stuff you hate. <laughs> and I was the, I guess, the person they felt was most available. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure <laughs> if I would use a different word, but I was there. And they tasked me with it. And I said, I won't do code generation, but I will create a tool that will let you do code generation because... Like you, I actually do not like code generation. Mm -hmm. I think that it is a huge anti-pattern. It's con it's necessary to get education done in some cases, I think. Yeah. But it's often it's often used to cover up a bad design. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. When there's so much code yeah. required. Yeah. Interestingly, why is the case? Because if you are able to generate a lot of code, it means there is somewhere duplication, right? Otherwise, you wouldn't generate anything. So I remember at the J2E one three one four timeline. I, gener I created a lot of code generators because you were able to generate it from one single class in the UML diagram, a lot of artifacts, you know. You could generate yeah. interface, implementation, deployment descriptor, mm -hmm. the uh, vendor-specific uh, deployment descriptor, and even service locators and value objects. So there was like, you no know, one to 10 ratio almost. And from <laughs> between PIM and PSM, no kidding. So PIM is the platform-independent model and PSM was the platform-specific model. And mm -hmm. uh, But now... In my microprofile, Jakarta, Java, whatever project, there is one-to-one. -one. So it would be one class, which is one annotated class. So there is nothing to generate, right? Right. You just type it up and you're done. Yeah. Yeah. There's like one class and then you could generate the class stuff. But I mean, I'm faster typing than, you know, drawing. Okay. Sorry. And what I really liked in your JBoss uh, Forge stuff, it was, it seems like it was bidirectional. Uh, yes. The difference that JBoss Forge had between other co-generators was that it wasn't just a generator it was actually a an interpreter it was a full-blown mm -hmm. uh, project tool so it would understand the configuration and some of the class relationships in the project and then use that to make decisions about how to generate more code or alter code that you had mm -hmm. uh, which made it really complicated <laughs> and uh, ultimately i think was one of the reasons why um, more people didn't use it because it was just a little bit you had to do more work it wasn't Everyone wanted something where you could just 
like if you're a project team and you want to generate quick starts, yeah, you don't want to have to program smart tools. You just want to generate your quick starts and let people, you know, get their really quick mm -hmm. app running. So it it solved the problem that almost didn't exist, but it did it really well and ended up really being powerful in ways that we didn't understand when we made it because it changed almost completely directions and started. It became not a project generation tool, but it became an embeddable tool okay. because it was all done in low-level Java, if that's a thing. Mm -hmm. uh, it didn't have any user interface restrictions. Mm -hmm. We designed mm -hmm. it so that you could run it as a command line. You could run it as a graphical tool that would drive user interfaces. You mm -hmm. could run it in a web page and mm -hmm. use that to drive web pages. Mm -hmm. So it ended up being a feature that teams would use to create tools for their own projects mm -hmm. instead of being a project generation tool because it did all of that understanding and interpretation of code. Okay. Is it still around? Yeah, it is actually. Um, I think it's still in JBoss Tools and it's in some of the Red Hat getting started experience for um, like launching hey, cool. projects. So what happened after JBoss Forge? So it was one, this was your main project and I assume mm -hmm. you also had a side project. <laughs> 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 yes. So I was still working on OCP soft uh, while I was working on Forge because I can't resist. Yeah. And uh, I wrote a library called Pretty Time uh -huh. that does Java, human readable Java time formatting. And it is just designed, it's design patterned enough so that you can write your own translation files for other languages. It's translated into about 50 languages now. Why you did it? Why? Because. When you're displaying a timestamp on a website, you don't, you don't want to see March 12th, 2019. You want to see one year ago okay, or six months ago. or And there wasn't a library at that point that would do that. So I said, okay, I'll make one. And cool. I open sourced it. Still around? Yeah, people still use it. I, every once in a while, I'll get a pull request for a new locale, new cool. language. And uh, successful? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's uh, still one of the most popular libraries used on Android just because it does that one thing very well. Yeah, cool. So yeah, famous guy, you know, with the side project. So I already <laughs> knew JBoss Forge and your pretty faces. I had no idea about pretty time, I have to admit, but uh, it sounds useful. Yeah, I mean, it does what it does, and it does it uh, well enough. It's it's not updated for the new JDK 10, JDK 9 time API, mm -hmm. but it still works. What happens after JBoss Forge? So after JBoss Forge, I worked on a project doing migration and went into the business for a while and got kind of tired of that. And, my, I picked up my hobbies again because they were, I don't know, I had more time. I was trying to focus more on my, my personal life. And I got into Magic the Gathering and uh, started doing competitive gaming, playing this card game. So, so you quit at Red Hat? No, I still I still worked at Red Hat, but I was just trying to get more balance because I was doing a lot of work for Red Hat. And you worked as a freelancer for Red Hat? or? No, I was an employee. Okay. Um, but, but how I, to manage that? So you can say, okay, I work less and it works? No, I just worked a lot. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So you are kind of workaholic. Yeah. And that's why I said, you know, I, I'm trying to, I would, towards, uh, in what I'm describing now, I was trying to get some balance back into my life and not okay. work 12 hour days and okay. that whole thing. So I, I did less side projects and more, more fun hobbies. And uh, I got into Magic the Gathering. And then it didn't last very long, the balance, because I started to see things that I could build for Magic and apps that would help people enjoy the game. And um, I started another side project uh, to help people keep track of all their cards and find new strategies for how to play the game. And 
to just explore and, and be a be a player. And I put an app out on the App Store because I had I'd always done backend stuff with, with Java, and I, I really wanted something new and to, to change a different perspective on development. So I said, okay, I'm going to make an app. I'm going to do it in JavaScript, TypeScript, and uh, that was my my new project. I put it in the App Store, and people started downloading it. And then a lot of people started downloading it. And then I said, wow, okay, this is probably something I could look at in terms of a business. And ultimately, I started working. I started wanting to work on that more than the Red Hat stuff and realized that I needed to, to follow it in mm-hmm. order to take the next step in my life. Okay. And you quit Red Hat now? or And I, when it got to the point where I said, okay, this is now making money, I quit Red Hat. I said, okay, this is, this is the time. If I don't do this now, I'll never do it. I quit Red Hat. I went full-time on this project, which is called Top Decked. Mm-hmm. And it's now been almost two years since I quit. It's still growing. And there's a new new launch of the software out that I actually sent you the link to before yeah. our call. And uh, it's it's almost ready. I think next month is the day. The date. What interests me, so after the uh, JBoss Forge experience at Red Hat, so nothing, so you just had some project management jobs, but nothing more product-based, right? Or what, what you did? You were involved still with Java, EE Java, or? I did actually have a few more projects at Red Hat. Um, I did the migration toolkit for uh, JBoss application server, which used actually a number of my open source libraries from my personal side. What's the name of the project? Uh, it was called Windup. Yeah, exactly. I uh, yeah. I asked because uh, one company asked me about that. So Windup. So this was from you, okay? Interesting. Uh-huh. Well, actually, it was started by a guy named Brad Davis in uh-huh. the, the Charlotte office here, mm-hmm. and the, it was he's a, he's in the consulting group. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there was no product team around it to mm-hmm. turn it into something people could actually use. So again, they they turned to me and said, "Hey, can you turn this? Can you take this?" really good concept and turn it into a product that our uh, customers can actually use because we had a lot of customers asking mm-hmm. for it. And um, yeah, I did that for about a year and a half before I ultimately quit. Okay, so you did this wind-up. This was the project after Jebos Fortune and you quit. quit. Yeah, and it used Forge internally, again, to understand the projects and you know redo all the configuration and, and spit out the configuration that would take people from... Uh, IBM WebSphere, uh, Web yeah. JBoss. Yeah. Okay, so now we. And then you started with Magic, you said, right? Yeah. And uh, you said you you wrote something uh, backend and frontend. So what you used for the backend back then? <laughs> well, I feel like a traitor uh, on your on your podcast, but uh, we I did it with Node.js. Okay. And. And. It it, it works. Yeah. I miss a lot of things about Java. Yeah. Why but you did it with Node.js? I did it with Node.js because for the research that I did in building apps at the time, there wasn't a lot of good interoperability between the different platforms. So Android, iPhone, mm-hmm. BlackBerry, Windows Phone, you know, all these different things. And the, the real path forward, and I still believe it's the path forward, was a hybrid app. Mm-hmm. So not oh. an app written native Android Java or uh, iOS C Sharp or Swift now, I think. But at a web app packaged in a scale, uh, you know, a shell of, of a real app that runs a website. So that meant HTML and JavaScript, and then the the server side stuff I considered doing in Java. But I said, you know, if I'm going to be writing code that works on these objects in JavaScript, I'd really like to be able to reuse that. Okay. That logic on the server as well, and so Node made sense. I I, I um do a lot of JavaScript as well. So, but what I do, I have you know backend services, REST services with the API, mm-hmm. and 
and the front end is more or less like a Fed client. And what I use in the front end, we, I don't use any frameworks because in larger projects, you know, the, my clients don't have the time or resources to constantly, you know, migrate from one version to another. And uh, and uh, other frameworks are too small. Often, you know, two people involved in a framework, so if they just lose interest, it would just be problematic. So what we use is web components, basically, and uh, with uh, lit HTML. This is like a small like oh, yeah. from Google. It's really it, nice, yeah. but, but not the um, lit element, rather than uh, just the library, which uh, uses like ESX um, string template literals, but more powerful. And just plain Redux. So we have two or three dependencies. And with that, what's, what's, what's really interesting is if I show that this to Java developers, they see now we see the light. Because it's exactly like Java, you know, it's no crazy, some cross transpilation or whatever. It's just, you know, what we had for years. And they are very, very productive. And mm-hmm. we, we are using Fetch to talk to the backend. And we use exactly the same design patterns in backend and frontend. So this is actually my stack. So I was just curious, what was your decision? Right. Uh-huh. Now, do you find that you've created a lot of? You say you use web components. Do you mm-hmm. do you find you've created libraries for yourself that you take around and reuse on projects? I I, I hear this a lot, and uh, not at all. What I create is I have one class which I actually copy and paste and adjust because it's more or less like I would say sixty lines of code. I already thought about to create an npm module, but it is too trivial. And this I call you know. OCP element or air hacks element. This is uh, like my, you know, uh, 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 domain. And uh, what it just does is it connected callbacks. It subscribes to the Redux store. On every change, it calls render, which is overridden in the subclasses. And uh, this is basically it. And uh, lots of uh, console uh, lock and group start and end. So we have a nice tracing. And this basically all. So for me, I thought about, you know, somehow exposing this class, one single JavaScript class, but uh, it was not worth. And if I just start with the class and show them to developers, they see, okay, there's nothing behind it. If I would start with NPM module again, you know, there's a little bit too much magic at the beginning for larger projects. Right. But with that, we are crazy productive. That, that's the thing. And uh, I get more and more requests for the front ends and um, even talks. I was at a JavaScript conference, imagine, I as a Java developer, international <laughs> JavaScript. JavaScript. Yeah, and I always brought, you know, the, the samples from Duke and they, someone asked me, who the hell is Duke? You know, why are you talking about the Duke? I sorry. Uh, you What's know? this weird clown? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, they never say, you know, the mascot. I just say, you know, Duke, hello, Duke. And they say, who, who is Duke? And, um, and they said it was for them. Um, they didn't knew that you can achieve a lot without frameworks. So this was mm-hmm. curious in, in, in your, uh, what, what you are actually doing. So I, just try that. So um, I, I would say uh, now it's probably too late because you have your, your app. Too late. <laughs> too late. But uh, what we do, migrations from Angular to web components, we you know, keep the skeleton going, and we write the new stuff with components. And there are yeah. even routers, which uh, comes... Uh, do you actually know Vardin? Uh, I'm familiar with it, yeah. It was an old, it's a JSF framework, or it was. Well, not JSF, a GWT-like JSF. So it was similar to JSF. Yes, but that's right. But what I did is... Uh, you can just pick from Vardin just the web components, and they are great web components without the yeah. Java backend. And the, so, mm-hmm. I always thought with Google Web Toolkit, actually, and there's there's two ways to look at it. I thought Google Web Toolkit was an amazing project. They had this whole JavaScript, Java to JavaScript compiler, and then they had all these components. Yeah, but yeah, it didn't make sense together. No, just one thing and then the other thing, and they were both great separately, but together they were really weird. 
Yeah. And for me, Google Web Toolkit was technology from hell because, you know, <laughs> client ask me as a consultant, help us with GWT, but this is no way if something breaks that you can actually no, you understand can. what's going on. It was the same story as Angular. If there's something, you know, happens inside, no one knows what happens there. And, um, and this was the problem with uh, Google Web Toolkit. But um, we take, for instance, the router from Vardin, just great little web components, and, and this, this works well. So a question to you, would you choose Node.js again? Or would you just use Quarkus or something like this? You know, actually, one of the questions I had for you here is uh, I've been gone or I've been on break from Java for about four years. What's mm -hmm. changed? Mm -hmm. And with what I know of Java now, I would say, yes, I would make the same decision again because it's I've been able to really write some really messy code <laughs> that I don't like, but get something up and running really quickly. And uh, I wouldn't have been able to do that in Java because the thing that Node gives you which is something I really like that Java doesn't give you, is the ability to drop typing. In JavaScript, you don't have to use types. Even in, uh, I actually use TypeScript because it lets you type, mm -hmm. but you don't have to. So if you want to just hack something and see if it's going to work, you know, huh. hack it up, no types. I have something for you. So this is a way back. You, uh, I don't know whether you heard about GraalVM. GraalVM, yeah. GraalVM, this is an open source JDK from Oracle. But the cool story is what I do right now is I can actually uh, start in Graal JavaScript and you can start Node.js. And this is highly compatible Node.js. So you, this is like, you know, um, uh, per accident, I compiled all my Angular consulting project with GraalVM for one year without knowing this. So this is really highly compatible implementation. And the huh. cool story is you can mix and match Java and, uh, and GraalVM. What I did, for instance, in my recent micro-profile workshop, online workshop, I use uh, GraalVM to load Mustache. You know Mustache? The template library? Mustache. I, Handlebars yeah. and Mustache. It's like, it looks like, yeah, yeah. And um, to render blog posts, for instance. So I, I, what I did with Naswan back then, now I did with, uh, with a standard JavaScript libraries, and it worked extremely well. So uh, wow. for you, take a look at GraalVM. And feedback to Node.js, what I um, actually did in recent, uh, for, for years, since you, you are away. So um, for startups, if I code something with modern Java, they say incredible how productive this actually is. So there is no way to use Node.js, actually. For me, I, I cannot just imagine that Node.js could be as productive as Java is. So this is why I'm asking you why you did it. I, th I thought you have specific requirements. And what I thought what you are doing, this was, um, you do like, the, you know, how it's called, ISO... Isometric or something uh, where you 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 are uh, writing components which are rendered on the server. That, that, then you, for instance, React can do this, and Angular can do this. So what yeah. they are, what they are doing is like what we did with uh, JSF. They can do it right now yeah. with Web. So they are starting, you know, they are they are rendering the components on the server and sending HTML back to the client. What we did, you know, twenty years ago with JSF. Now it happens in JavaScript. <laughs> and I thought you are doing this, but without that. Without that, I think Node.js is, I would say, pointless in my project. And That's with Quarkus, Red Hat, you know, if you would you know, be a three years longer at Red Hat, you will find technology called Quarkus. You heard about that? I've heard about it. Uh, and if I'm not mistaken, Quarkus is a very slim version of Java that compiles to native yeah. code, right? Yeah, but this would be a little bit boring. Yeah, it could also do this. What Quarkus actually is, this is a, a, one of the you know, most genius projects at Red Hat, I would say, right now. All the guy you probably know, guys you probably know, you know the uh, Emmanuel Benar and, and whoever yeah. did something with Whitefly, 
or whatever in Red Hat. Now there's like everyone runs Quarkus. So that's like you know the common integration point is my my opinion from outside or what I observe from outside to um uh, about Red Hat. And um what Quarkus does, this was the genius thing. You can still use the old uh let's say Java E or MicroProfile, it's very similar to Java E APIs. Mm-hmm. And what Quarkus does, it optimizes everything at build time. And at runtime, there is no reflection, just one class loader, and everything is optimized. So mm-hmm. what it means is if you start a, a, a Quarkus application, which is like mid-range CRUD application, it is smaller than empty Tomcat. And in my projects, and the native is the next step because Quarkus already knows all the dependencies. It can pass you know, the dependency graph to the Graal VM again. And GraalVM opti- creates a static image, and this is smaller than Node.js and starts in tens of milliseconds. So this is, but the genius is, you don't have to use esoteric libraries. You can still use, you know, a JBoss Forge or whatever you had <laughs> to create the application, and um, and you get highly optimized runtime. And this is which takes off like crazy, right? Yeah, I've I've heard about it. So that's the one thing I've actually heard about since uh, since I haven't been there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'll have to take a look at that. The uh, I just want to get back to the the choice to use Node again. Um, it really, I like I love Java. It's super fast. It's unbeatable in that way in terms of like, uh, I, and I think it's actually unbeatable in developer productivity in a lot of ways too because yeah, it just does so much right in the the way that the language flows. They've improved it a lot with lambdas, um, and the I wanted to I wanted to use Java on the back end, but I found myself translating files from the user interface into java and i didn't want to have to do that anymore so i just said okay i'll i give up i'll i'll just do the the javascript on the back end too for, for me it's almost identical it's, it's the only thing which i miss in java from time to time is destructuring you know the syntax that you can yeah. destructure an object this is what everything else is almost is almost identical and that's what typescript gave to me uh i don't know if you've tried typescript it's yes, but uh, you know I'm minimalistic, so like you, so ES6 plus is just good enough, and this type, TypeScript introduces another cross compilation step, which we have to care That's about. True. And what I do in my projects, we have no browser sync and nothing else, and the mm-hmm. developers cannot believe that they don't even need npm on their machines. So this is complete new world. And ES6 wasn't um, wasn't out when I started this project. Yeah, exactly, because it was four years ago. So and ES6. It's available in all browsers. Yeah, which is great. It's it's universal now. Yeah. Now, now I would like to learn something from you. So you get us uh, know a little education about Quarkus. So what is magic? You, you, what is magic? You mentioned a game <laughs> called Magic, and you wanted to dedicate more and more time, but for me, it's not understandable. So if I have the choice, you know, between Quarkus and Magic, I usually say, <laughs> no, no Quarkus. Uh, no, sorry, no Magic. Uh, in my always, no Magic in my talks. But what is Magic? W- what is it? So Magic the Gathering is a, the original collectible card game. Okay. And I will just pull a card up here and show you. I'll describe it so that everyone else can can see what it is. But no, you have all these. It is audio only, but I will, I will, I will you know, uh, transcribe what it actually is. Okay, so show me the card. Yeah, so you've got this card, and it's a, it's a creature. Yeah. Uh-huh. And when you play the game, you have all these different kinds of creatures and spells. and Okay. <laughs> Enchantments, and the premise is you are a wizard. Okay. Essentially, they call them planeswalkers, and you're doing battle with another planeswalker, another wizard. 
sit across the table and you cast your spells at each other and you attack with creatures and you defend with creatures. And the objective is to get the opponent, your friend, okay, down from 20 life to zero life. Okay. And you do that using any number of, I think there are almost 20,000 unique cards in the game now. Oh. And it, every card has different abilities that change the rules of the game. But how to start with it? Would I have to buy Magic, the game, or how it works? Yeah, so you have to buy, in theory, well, actually, you don't have to buy anything now. There's a free version of Magic called Magic Arena, which is a PC game, and they have a great, they finally solved the, the teaching people how to play problem, because okay. it has a great great tutorial. They show you how to play, they get you started, and it, it's all, you know, you get more cards as you go, and it's very well done. How long? How long does it take until... Two persons have no idea about magic can play together or against each other. I think maybe if you're both playing on the digital version, maybe 15 minutes. Okay, and, and the card version? And if you're actually just sitting down with cards and you're trying to play, it it might take you a few tries. You'll have to... Okay. Do and and is, is it possible you know, to play one against the other? So just two people or you need more people involved? Yeah, just two people. Um, you need Well, you need actually at least two people. At least two people, okay. Yeah, you can play with any any amount. It just gets ridiculous. So okay. I would say between two and four is probably the best. Okay. And how it works, I, I, I let's say I would like to play the real, not the PC, so the card game. So I will buy Magic on Amazon or somewhere, right? So I will get a box. Yeah, you can, you can get cards either pre-packaged in little packages, like packs, or um, if you really just want to you know, go in headfirst, you can go on eBay or Amazon and just buy someone's old junk cards that really they're not worth anything. Uh, because again, it is a collectible game. So some cards, if they have this little like gold symbol here, are usually worth some amount of money. Ah, um, so you can just get random cards and ah, it's collectible games. What it means is, yeah, so I have to collect the cards. But if I have to start, is it like you no know, the foundation or base cards or or no? Yeah, you can get but uh, you can get basically you know starter packs. Okay, that get you going. Um, and. Then from there, if you want to make something more complex and you know play with any of those thousands of cards and make a strategy that's just off the walls and makes people's eyes pop, you can buy specific cards and put them together in combinations. And is it company behind or a mastermind or how? There, it... there is. Uh, it's actually owned by Hasbro, ah, a big toy company. Okay. And they, the name of the company that started it was Wizards of the Coast. <laughs> cool name. Um, but yeah, it's it's a big company. It's a big game. There are millions of people who play it. Okay. I think the estimate is twenty million players, and so that's where the app comes in. I just, I'm my how you started to play? Oh man, I started when I was before high school. Ah, okay. Uh, it's just kids at school had these cards, and I got some cards, and we would go down to this little smoky card shop in our small town, and we would play cards for hours. Hey, cool. So let's say I get my base cards and you have your advanced cards and you would like to start to play with each other right now. So how how it works? I have all the cards I bought on Amazon on my side and what I can do? I will read the cards and try to attack you or what? So what you need to do, uh, there's a little bit of preparation that goes into playing a game. Okay. Um, there are rules. It's a game. So you have to be able to play a spell that does something to affect your opponent. Okay. And in order to play a spell, you have to have resources. So you need to put together a mix of resources and spells in your deck of cards. Okay. And then before you start the game, after you've chosen the cards you want to play with, you shuffle them up so they're random. You pick up seven for your starting hand. Mm -hmm. And then you 
as you progress, you play one resource every turn that lets you incrementally play more powerful attacks. Okay. But I will never win because you're, you have the collectible cards, so you're more powerful than I am, right? Or, or is it a chance right. for me to win with my base cards? Uh, probably no chance. But <laughs> okay. So what, I, so what we would do is we would agree on uh, the ground rules. And ah. what, the, what the company that makes the game has done is they've created different sets of ground rules. So you can play at different competition levels. There's like beginner, and you can only play with a certain predefined set of cards. Ah, okay. And then there's like the most recent two months of cards because they're always putting new cards out. You can only play with the most recent two months of cards, so everyone has the same access. Okay. <laughs> or, you, or you can play like old school, where you have to have all the old stuff from 25 years ago. Yeah. And, you know, only 10,000 people in the world have them. Okay. So now I, I got a little bit of the complexity. So, uh, what your App Store application did then? So you go said. My app, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, go ahead. So, what I understood is you wrote us the first app, and then you started with the startup. So, there were two apps, right? The one was your. App at the App Store, which became popular, and then you started your startup, right? Uh, right. I, I actually I started the app in the App Store because I thought it could be a business, but okay. I wasn't sure. Yeah. And um, how successful was it? Uh, it was successful enough that in six months, I think it went from one download, mine, to twenty thousand downloads. This is a lot, right? In in App Store, I th think so, right? Because uh, I mean, it's good for a. a uh, what I'll call an independent app. Mm -hmm. And then now it's up to, I think it's been downloaded over 300,000 times, which is incredible for like an app targeted for a specific game. Okay. That, yeah, know, only a it is incredible. I just wanted to know. And what, how such an app would help me? So what I can do with it? As a, as a Magic player, what my app will help you do is let you look at things that people are doing in the game, for one. So you can say, okay, how do I make a deck? How do I put these cards together in a way that's effective and fun? So you pull up the app and it says, okay, these are the cards that people are playing with now. These are some of the latest decks that people have done well with. And you can like explore and see all the different combinations of cards and shows you all the new cards that are coming out and just keeps you in, in tune with what's going on in Magic. In addition to once you have cards, you can enter in your collection to track its value because it's collectible and, and some of the cards are valuable. And you can put your decks, your your strategies into mm -hmm. like documents, essentially. And then you can, wherever you are, you can open up your deck and you can put new cards in, take cards out and play with the ideas that you get in your head and test them, actually. So once you've put the deck in, you can test it and it'll pull up a simulation of a game mm -hmm. where you can draw your seven cards and play things out onto the battlefield, they call it. Okay. And see how your deck is going to do. And where you get the data? So the other users have to put their cards in order the other users to see other cards? Or um, There's a, a card database that's provided with the app. So all of those 20,000 cards, and actually it's like 50,000 if you include all the different printings of the cards, are in the database. Which you can search your the database? database? Yes. Hey, okay. And you scan the and cards? That data, well, it's all, there's a lot of free resources online. Okay. That people publish mm -hmm. information, so I've imported from a number of them and created, I'll say, a, a comprehensive list with all everything kind of unified to the same format. Okay, and now your startup is it related to the to the app or is it something different? It's the same thing, yeah. Okay, because you sent me the link and I I was really excited and then opened you know the app, 
and I couldn't understand what's going on. It's like, what, <laughs> what the hell is this? So what it does, I, I thought this is something, you know, from enterprise space or whatever, so something, you know, related to my work. And there was some mm-hmm. magic, like, uh, no, and then you, then you t- uh, told me, okay, this is a uh, gaming. I said, okay, then, uh, but I was really curious because it looks interesting. I was curious what it actually does. But it's a highly complicated okay. software, right? Oh, man, it's the most challenging thing I've ever done. Yeah, it, it sounds this is like. Coming from, coming from someone who's made, you know, back-end frameworks yeah. and tools that make tools, this is the most complicated thing I've ever done. And part of it is because it's just a complicated, you know, building user interfaces is complicated when you need them to be efficient and, and yeah. clean and usable. But part of it's because this game has 700 pages of rules. Yeah. And to make an application that is usable for someone who's deep into the game and needs to know how things interact with other things and make that simple enough for people to actually use, that's complicated. Yeah, this is incredible. So how you did it? So how, how you actually scanned the 700 pages? <laughs> well, I didn't have to do that, thankfully. Someone else someone else has done that and provided it for free to okay. uh, developers. And the, the, the parent company puts them out as well. Okay, cool. But, yeah, that'd be that'd be too much work. <laughs> but still, as a really interesting thing. So, so now you really combine, you know, your hobby and uh, your profession. And I assume yeah. there are no more side projects right now, right? That's correct. All <laughs> that... of the side projects, <laughs> all of the side projects have fallen away. This is the only project without side and, project. Uh, and next month is the big, big reveal. What you saw mm-hmm. when I gave you that link is. Um, I already I created an account for you, so it skipped all of the hey, what does this thing do, and you know how do I start? It just kind of dumped you right into the yeah. into the thick of things. Okay, but uh, yeah, there's there's a a lot of work that we're still doing to create that whole experience of like what's the value of this as a player? Why should I even make an account, and then why should I pay for it? And it's a uh, additional complexity. <laughs> But I think if the if the game is that complicated and has so huge following, it is an old game. You 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 told me right now that it is, you started at its high school, so it has probably twenty mm-hmm. years or something. And um, yeah. and uh, how many cards? Fifty thousand. And you have to to buy new cards, right? How expensive are the cards? Yeah, there's. Uh, you can buy packs of fifteen random cards. Yeah. For about four US dollars. Okay, so I would say and- then it's absolutely added value to buy something which make it simpler, right? To save time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you're spending money on this game. Yeah. And the whole concept, uh, one of the value concepts of the app is if I'm spending money on this game, I want to know that I'm spending it on the right things. Am yeah. I buying a card that's going to make my, my deck or my strategy better? Am I buying cards that are going to make me have more fun with my friends? Yeah. So try it before you buy it is essentially why you would buy mm-hmm. object. Ah, so it's like an expert system. Expert simulation system for magic. Except the expert is you. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. It uh, it just it helps you explore and try things before you actually put your, your hands on the cards. Mm-hmm. Can you give our listeners, I don't know what you can give. Is is there something they could get if they are have interests in top decker yeah. or I can uh, I can give them a uh, well, anyone can sign up for an account. It's free to use. I, I fully believe that I want the software to be usable for free, but cool. I'd be happy to give listeners a discount code for, you know. Uh, Send me the email and I will put it to show notes or you can. Work. Yeah. Yeah. So we just um, promote your 
game. But uh, sad, sad news, actually, for you. Because I mentioned Quarkus and Graal, I think you have uh, mm. a new side project, right? Oh, my God. <laughs> I'll never so, finish this app. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, But actually, before I go, I want to say one last thing about where I want to take this app, because I talked a lot about what it does. Mm-hmm. But my dream is to make software that, and the pandemic is making this hard, but my dream is to make software that takes people who like to play games and helps them make friends. Okay. Make new connections. Okay. Um, I I always hear my friends talk about, oh, I want to I want to I want to learn this new game. I want to try this <clears throat> game. Do you want to play with me? And it's always a trouble to find the right time and mm-hmm. get together. And I know that a lot of people like to play games. There's just no good place for them to meet. You've got Meetup.com and a couple other things like that, but it's all noisy and there's other yeah. stuff. So I want I want Top Deck to be the place that people go. When you want to play a game and you don't really know who you want to play with, you want to make new friends, you just log in, you say, I want to play this game, and you get matched up with someone and they want to meet you at a coffee shop or something like that and try a new game out. It's actually a great idea because you could log in, you could even have, you know, the uh, different worlds with the skills you set. So like, you know, mm-hmm. isolated worlds where people with the base skills, whatever, call it, play together. Or yep. from I want to be a mentor. I'm learning. That, yeah. that type of the roles like in, in the app like what you know i i'm just learning this game help me help me see why it's fun yeah and uh would you be able to play in the game or you would need the card and the game will or the app will support you you know what i mean so can you play you know with your app without the cards or you will have the card still and the game is like supported supporting tool so i don't want to take business away from the people that make the games mm-hmm. I don't think the app will ever let you play the game in its complete state without actually owning the cards, because that would be—I would consider that like stealing, right? You're you're taking something someone else has made and letting other people do it. But I want to connect people with who've who've bought the game or or something like that with other people who want to try it, or if someone already owns it and just says, you know, come, you can use all my cards. We'll just learn how to play that kind of thing. But how to input? You can't. The cards into the game, so you will have to scan them or something. Um, well, there are, you just type the name of the card. And okay. Press plus and minus and add it. Okay. But you can actually, in the new version of the app, simulate a two-player a two-player game, mm-hmm. and it'll it'll let you do enough that you can kind of get the sense of how things are going. But okay. it'll never be a replacement for the actual game. Cool. It's just too complicated, and it's not something I want to do. Okay. We should talk again. You know, at, I would say, if you become, you know, something uh, uh, listed on the Wall Street, for instance, you know, like uh, <laughs> OCP soft, you know, Nasdaq, right. Nasdaq. Pro- What's that? <laughs> um, no, it's a, it was a fun conversation. And the next time we could, we could focus actually on, I don't know, JavaScript or backend, if you have, have you know, some experiences yep. with Quarkus, and we can talk about more deeply about web components and TypeScript or whatever. Because Definitely, and uh, we can we can have a battle about object-oriented programming and design patterns. <laughs> yeah, uh, this would be a nice battle. So, um, and I never got the idea that you actually have the opposite in opinion than mine, but somehow we are compatible. So, it was fun. <laughs> so, thank you. S- send send me you know if you have uh, discount codes, whatever we can put it on show notes, and uh, maybe some of my listeners uh, have idea what magic is. I, I now I have. It sounds like fun, and I will uh, take a look at you know at magic and Hasbro. So I'm curious, curious what. If you it ever want to. If you ever want to learn how to play, just give me a call. 
Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thanks, Adam. This was great. Bye. Bye.